I'll invite you now to stand with me. We're not going to read our entire text this morning, uh, but for the sake of time, just the first section in Genesis 18, starting in verse 16 uh, down through verse 21. Then the men set out from there and they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Seeing that Abraham so surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Let's pray together. Fathers, we open your word together this morning. Would you speak to us, we pray. Would we recognize that this is the word of God written so that we might believe. Help us to believe today. As we have as a as a nation celebrated Thanksgiving and we now turn into the Advent season, we do uh, recognize that this text is somewhat unique. May not initially draw us to either one of those ideas, Thanksgiving or hope, but it is there. Help us to see it, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. This morning's sermon is entitled Fierce Judgment. And we do see the fierce judgment of the Lord in chapters 18 and 19 against the wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. However, of all the events in Genesis, this, an infamous one, may be one of the most well-known in all of the 50 chapters. It is likely the one we most often run the risk of missing the forest for the trees. We become so fixated on the Lord's fierce judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah that we fail to really see the reason this account is in the Genesis narrative. Yes, this morning we will see the fierce judgment of the Lord in this story. It's why I have entitled the sermon Fierce Judgment. But this is not new. If you have been here since the beginning of this series in Genesis, you know we have seen the judgment of God on multiple occasions. We saw it in Genesis 3 as Adam and Eve were removed from the garden, cursed with death for sinning one time against God. In Genesis 4, we saw the banishment and the curse of Cain after he killed his brother Abel. Genesis 7, the fierce judgment of God flooded the earth, saving only one family. In Genesis 11, God confused the languages and spread out the peoples of the earth across the face of the world due to their arrogance and disobedience. So the pattern of God judging sin is not new to readers of Genesis. 
But what we run the risk of missing this morning by only focusing on God's judgment against these wicked twin cities is the other actions of both God and man that are in this text to instruct us. This week we celebrated Thanksgiving and today we lit the first Advent candle, the candle of hope. And at first glance, you may not think that this passage has anything to do with either of those. But if you allow me some time this morning as we work through this passage, I believe you will see more than just molten rain falling on the wicked. But a story that brings us hope for which we can all be thankful if we find ourselves in Christ Jesus our Lord. This morning's sermon begins with fierce judgment and intercession. The verses that we read in verses 16 through 21 tell us of the Lord informing Abraham of his plan to judge Sodom and Gomorrah. This is following right in line with what we saw last week where three men, men, fleshly bodies, one being the Lord, two being angels of the Lord, appear before Abraham, and Abraham throws a mighty feast, hoping that they will stay. And we see God affirm his promise that Sarah will bear a son within the year to Abraham, 99 years old Abraham, 89-year-old Sarah. She laughs within the tent, and the Lord being omniscient, knowing all things, hears her laugh and points it out. And yet God is still faithful to keep his promise. And now these men, as we read at the beginning of our time this morning, are setting out from Abraham and two of them are going to go, it said, the text says down to Sodom. Now it's down to Sodom, not because it's necessarily south, because it wouldn't be south. It would be more in an eastward direction, but because Sodom was by the Dead Sea and the Dead Sea is down from pretty much everywhere in the entire world. And so they were going to go down to these valley cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so these two angels part way with the Lord and the Lord kind of muses to himself and the biblical author records this musing and he asks this question, should I tell Abraham what I'm about to do? Now by asking the question in that way, the narrator gives to us the information what the Lord is about to do and how it relates to the promise that we have seen over and over in these chapters made by God to Abraham. It is Abraham who God is going to bless. It is Abraham who God has commanded to do righteousness and justice. Verse 19 has told us that. It is him who is to keep the way of the Lord, doing righteousness and justice that God has kept his promise to. And this story at its core is a story of righteousness and justice. And so God tells Abraham what he is going to do. In verses 20 and 21, we see the personification of the Lord's actions where the Lord talks about this great outcry that has reached his ears from these cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he poses this question. And he states, I will go down there. 
I, I, I will go down and see what they have done all together and to see if this outcry is real or not. And if it's not, I will know. Don't think for a minute that the Lord didn't already know. This is, as we have seen in earlier, in earlier narratives in Genesis, a personification of the Lord's action for our benefit so that we can see the process that he is going through. Really what is happening here is the Lord is going to judge. Before he brings judgment, he is going to judge. Now he knows what he is going to find because he is omniscient. We've already seen his omniscience and knowing that Sarah laughed from within the tent. So we, he knows what he is going to find, but we're seeing God here as a righteous judge, as one who investigates the cry of those against evil. And he will find great evil in Sodom and Gomorrah. And the Lord tells Abraham what he is planning to do. But know this, because some already in here are beginning to wince some. Because when we talk about God sitting as judge and we talk about God punishing evil in his fierce judgment, there are those that don't want to think about God in this way. This is not a popular way of thinking about God. 21st century Westerners, if we embrace the idea of God, it is this loving, benevolent God who allows us to live any old way we want to live as long as we're being true to ourselves. doesn't matter if we're true to him. But the Bible paints a completely different picture of God. He is one who judges in righteousness and is always right when he does so. These previous acts of judgment that we have seen in earlier chapters of Genesis, God was right in every case. He was right to remove Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden. He was right to banish Cain. He was right to flood the earth. He was right to scatter the people out of Babel. God is always right when he judges. Deuteronomy 32, 4 says, the rock, that is God, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. We are going to see a very fierce picture of God when we get to chapter 19. But know this and never lose sight of it. God is just in his actions in this moment. But then, and this is where we, this is really where we start to run the risk of missing the forest for the trees, is we want to run straight into Sodom start seeing molten rain fall from the heavens and miss what Abraham does. So Abraham, Abraham hears of the plan of God and he intercedes before the Lord on behalf of the righteous in the city. Pick up in verse 22. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. So the angels have gone to Sodom. Abraham's still with the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, 
If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. There are two things that we see here in this conversation with the Lord, or two things that we can know to be true. First, the Lord will find no righteousness in Sodom. He will find none. He will certainly not find 50. And in the following verses, Abraham begins to barter with the Lord. And he says, okay, well, what about, what about if there's five less than 50? What if there's only 45? And the Lord says, okay. And he says, well, what if, what if there's 15 less than 45? What if there's only 30? The Lord says, okay. Well, what if there's 10 less than that? What if there's only, what if there's only 20? Ultimately leading to verse 32, where Abraham comes to the Lord again, he says, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak again, but this once. Suppose 10 are found. And he answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham and Abraham returned to his place. Abraham also knows they're not righteous in that city. But God will find no righteousness in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, even... Abraham's nephew, Lot, who becomes the central figure in the next chapter. Why can we affirm this to be true? Because the Bible tells us that none is righteous on his own. None stand before God as righteous. Only Abraham here in this story is righteous, and he is not righteous on his own. He is righteous because God has credited his righteousness to Abraham because of his faith. And yet Abraham pleads to God. He pleads to him anyway. He says, oh God, surely if you find some righteous, righteousness in the city, you will not do this 50 and 45 and 30 and 20 and 10. Oh God, will you save them? If we were to move from Genesis 18 into Genesis 19 and, and move quickly into the judgment of Sodom and miss this, we would miss an example that all of us should follow out of this text. A question that all of us should ask, how often do I plead before the Lord for those who are under his judgment? How often do I go to the Lord and say, oh God, would you save people Oh God, would you save my lost family members? Oh God, would you save my lost friends? Oh God, would you spare us your judgment? Would you spare them, God, knowing they deserve it? And Abraham knows that Sodom deserves the judgment of God. He's already interacted in a previous chapter with the king of Sodom. And Abraham says, I'm not going to take anything from you. He says all the way down to a shoelace. I don't want people to think I took anything from you. Abraham knows the wickedness of these people. He's lived now for nearly an entire generation in their land. He knows who they are and yet he pleads on their behalf anyway. I ask us this question this morning, church, how often do we plead on the behalf of the unrighteous that we know? How often do we go before the Lord and ask that he would save souls? If I were to answer honestly for myself, I would say my answer is not nearly enough. 
I don't presume to speak for you. I can only speak for myself. And to speak for myself, I would say, not nearly enough. Not nearly enough am I before the Lord asking that he would hold back his judgment and bring people to faith in him leading to righteousness. Not nearly enough do I ask him to do what only he can do and relent from his wrath against evil and cause salvation to come into the lives of men and women. No, far too often the position of the modern church is not one on our face before the Lord asking that he would relent, but our position is one of gloating when we see the wicked punished. Even though we're warned in the scriptures in Proverbs 24 to not rejoice when our enemy falls, we so often do the exact opposite. We actually are proud about it. We brag about it online and we, we hope for the day that our enemies will be judged. And when we see any small little thing happen in their lives, we say, see, that's why they get what they get. Oh, church. Let us repent because we too, outside of the gift of faith in our lives, deserve equally to experience the wrath of God. Let us be as Abraham was, pleading before the Lord in his fierce judgment, interceding on behalf of those about to experience his wrath. Second, Fierce judgment and escape. The Lord's messengers here will arrive in Sodom and personally experience the wickedness of the people. Now, the Lord himself does not go down to Sodom. His two messengers do. They are acting on behalf of the Lord. They are his investigators. In the first four verses, we're told that the angels come to Sodom and Lot, following in a very similar pattern, to Abraham offers them hospitality and yet they refuse it. And they say, we're going to sleep out in the square. We're going to sleep out in the open. We didn't come here to eat in your house, Lot. We came here to see what the Lord sent us to see. And we pick up in verse four. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. Now, verse four is an inclusive verse, meaning the, the, the prevalence of wickedness in this city was great. It's why it says, young, old, all, everyone has come. Verse five, and they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the man at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men for they have come under the shelter of my roof. So here we see what the great sin of Sodom is. Were there more than one sin in Sodom? Surely. Just as there are a multitude of sins in every culture and in every place that has embraced wickedness, there were probably many, many sins in Sodom. But the one that defined this city is clear to see in this text. These men have come to have sexual relations with the visitors in Lot's house. 
And Lot knows it. He, he knows what is going to happen. He has lived in this city for some time now. He knows what his culture has embraced. And he even warned them not to go, but to stay in his house. And yet here they are surrounded. And the, the word of the original language that is translated surrounded means surrounded with evil intent. It is always used when the intent is evil. And the intent here is certainly evil. They've surrounded the house. Bring them out to us, they say. And Lot, seeking to somehow rectify this situation from a parent's perspective only makes it far worse. I have these two daughters who, we're going, who we see later in the text are actually engaged, but had not yet consummated their marriage. So engaged adult daughters who have never had sexual relations with a man. Here, take my daughters instead. Oh, the sin of Sodom is great. And yes, the practice of homosexuality is sin. It is. Make no mistake about that. Regardless of how many today will seek to explain away this text and many others as either misunderstood or from antiquity, homosexuality is sin. It is not only sin in the Old Testament. It is affirmed as sin in the New Testament where the apostle Paul writes in Romans 1, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now stop there in Romans 1 for just a second and recognize something. What Paul has in mind in Romans 1 is clearly what is happening in Genesis 19. That the culture had degraded to the point where this vast sexual evil was prevalent. So prevalent that all of the men, the text tells us from Sodom, come out to do exactly what Paul is describing in Romans 1. But let's keep reading what the apostle says. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what, he ought, not, what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, they full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliceness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. It's easy. Listen to me, church. Look me in the eyes. It's easy for us to read Genesis 19 and say, oh, they're about to get what's coming to them. But when we read Romans 1 in the context of Genesis 19, recognizing these are both the word of God, here's what we need to fully understand. Yes, homosexuality is sin, but so is everything else that Paul lists in Romans 1. And if you can't find yourself in that list in Romans 1, then you are a liar. Meaning you should find yourself in the list. Because we are all in our flesh given over to one or more of these things. We all embrace the ways of this world. We all deserve to die. 
Now, the specific sin here in Genesis 19 is clear and it is an abomination before the Lord. But lest we stand up on our pedestal and say, well, because they sin differently than us, God is right to condemn them and shouldn't condemn me. Let us all recognize that if it were not for the grace of God, we are all Sodom and Gomorrah, all deserving the full wrath of God for our wickedness. And yet in the midst of this wickedness, the Lord shows mercy to Lot and provides a means of escape. In verses nine through 14, the people press even further against the house, not wanting to take Lot's daughters. No, they want these visitors. And ultimately the angels, when when all seems lost, they're about to break into the house. They can't even close the door. The angels step in, closing the door, striking the crowd blind. And they warn Lot of what is to come. Lot goes to the two men that are engaged to his daughters, who the text calls his son-in-laws, but this would have been a betrothed son-in-law. And he goes and explains it to them and they don't believe because they're of these people. We pick up in verse 15. As morning dawned, the angel heard Lot saying, up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand of the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him against the city. And as they brought them out, one said, escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills lest you be swept away. Lot then says, I don't want to go to the hills. Lot always seems to be bargaining here. I don't want to go to the hills. I want to go to this other city there in verses 18 through 21. And these men say, fine, escape there quickly for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zor. So what we see here in this text, even though Lot recognizes the wickedness, Lot recognizes that these are true messengers from God, he even goes and warns some other people in his household who don't listen to him. When morning comes, he has no urgency. These men say, get up, take your wife, take your daughters. This is all who will listen and go because this punishment is coming on this city. But verse 16 says he lingers. You see, we know that Lot has now lived in Sodom for some time. He was living in Sodom before there was a great war in the land and he was captured as a resident of Sodom and taken up to the northern side of Israel where Abraham has to come and rescue him. And Abraham rescues him, brings him back. And where does Lot go? He goes right back to Sodom. Lot had become accustomed to living in this pagan, wicked place. And while he has enough sense to recognize that these men are from God, he does not have near the urgency that he should have. And you should, you should read that in this story. This is, this is always my wife's complaint when we watch a TV show or a, a movie that has some suspense to it. She always says, these people don't act with the kind of urgency they need to act with. You ever feel that? <laughs> and that's what you should read here. Get it together, man. Don't worry about breakfast. Don't worry about packing your things. God has warned you and is seeking to deliver you. And know this, God is not delivering Lot because Lot was righteous. God is delivering Lot in verse 29, we would read, for Abraham's sake. 
Once again, God is doing this for Abraham, not for Lot. It's his family. And so because of God's promise to Abraham, he is going to rescue Lot, and Lot lingers and lingers and lingers, and yet, and finally makes, well, I don't want to go there, let me go here. Could you imagine, like, you're being offered an escape route, and you're told, no, I don't really want to go that way. And yet again, the Lord, in his mercy, allows a path of escape. Finally, we see fierce judgment and disobedience. The Lord destroys Sodom and Gomorrah as Lot's wife is turned to salt for looking back. Verse 23, the sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zor. So Lot makes it out. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the city and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. We're going to see two acts of disobedience here in the concluding verses of Genesis 19. The first is Lot's wife. Lot's wife in this story has always been tied directly to Lot. We don't know her name. We're not told that up until this point that she makes any action other than exactly what her husband expects her to do. She's an afterthought in the text until now. And here, on their way back, having been warned to not look back, she directly disobeys the word of the Lord. The messengers of God had been clear, and she looks back. Now, does God, it's important, I think, does God turn her into a pillar of salt, which I just find very interesting? Does God do that because she happened to see something that she wasn't supposed to see? No. Looking back doesn't mean that she happened to glance and see the molten rain falling from heaven as they attempted to flee the city, which if you've ever seen this depicted, you know, in pictures or in a movie, that's what it is. But they've already made it to Zor. Her looking back doesn't mean that she happened to glance over her shoulder and just happened to see Medusa standing behind her and now she's stoned. Lot's wife looking back was a condition of her heart. She missed her city. She missed her culture. She looked back because those had become her people. And in disobedience, she longed for what she was leaving behind and she was judged right alongside the inhabitants of the city. Then we get to verse 30. And, and verses 30 down through 38 here at the end of the chapter is really a weird text. It, 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 it's strange. Let's just admit it. We're about to read something that's strange. If you've never read, the, if you thought the story ended with Lot's wife turning to salt, you're reading it quickly now because the preacher called it strange. What, what's he talking about? Well, you're, you're about to see. There's grievous sin. And this Lot's story is brought to a close with grievous sin and lasting consequences because of disobedience. We already see Lot widowed because of disobedience, and now we're going to see his story end marked in disobedience. Pick up in verse 30. Now Lot went up out of Zor. So that place that he said he wanted to go, he didn't stay there. You know where he ends up? He ends up in the exact place that the angels told him to go. 
and lived in the hills with his two daughters. For he was afraid to live in Zor. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. So he has gone up into the hill country, living in a cave. This man who was living the city life, likely wealthy from his relationship with Abraham, now has nothing. He is destitute. He is afraid to be around people. He is a hermit in a cave. And the firstborn said to the younger, our father is old. And there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Remember, their betrothed died in Sodom. Come, let us make our father drink wine and we will lie with him that we may preserve offspring for our father. If we were to keep reading in this text, here's what we would find. On night one, that's what she did. And on night two, the younger sister did the same. And in verse 36, we read, thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn, the firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The day being the day that the biblical author is writing this. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. And he is the father of the Ammonites to this day. Lot's daughters, raised in a sexually perverse city, are influenced by that upbringing and become pregnant by their father. Let that sit on you for a moment. That these children, seemingly unprotected by the vast wickedness of that city, offered up as a substitute sexual sacrifice in the previous account now devise this wicked, grievous plan to become pregnant by their father. And you know who's to blame here? Lot. Lot is the one that we should blame. Yes, these adult women have chosen very poorly. But they have chosen very poorly because they were given a very poor example. Both their mother and father showed them disobedience before the Lord. And now they have also disobeyed. And that disobedience has long-lasting consequences. When the people of the Lord, hundreds of years later, finally freed out of Egypt, and they begin to go into the promised land, there are two very specific people groups that do not help them. Do you know who they are? The Ammonites and the Moabites. In Deuteronomy 23, we read, no Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the 10th generation. None of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever because they, do not meet you, they did not meet you with bread and with water on the way when you came out of Egypt and because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor, from Pethor of Mesopotamia to curse you. But the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam. Instead, the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loved you. You shall not seek their peace or their prosperity all your days forever. Conceived in wickedness in that cave were two sons who would become the father of the Ammonites and the Moabites who would be enemies of the Lord generations later the long-lasting effects of disobedience should not be overlooked. So what? In Jesus, we find access to the Father to intercede for the lost, lost escape from the judgment of God and a call to persevere in righteousness. 
Go back to how I started this. I know this has been heavy. Go back to how I started this this morning. We've just celebrated Thanksgiving. We're, we're in the first Sunday of Advent, lighting the candle of hope. And it seems as if this is not a story to be thankful for at all. It seems as if there is no hope. The city destroyed Lot's life, ruined his daughters, beginning their families in sin with their father. Where is their hope? The hope, church family, is in Jesus. The hope that we find in him is one that we have eternal thanksgiving for. And here's what that hope gives us. It gives us, out of this story, we recognize it gives us three things. The first is the right to go before God, just as Abraham did, and plead to him that he save people. In Hebrews chapter 4, We read, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. It seemed awful bold of Abraham in chapter 18 to keep going back before the Lord and say, okay, what about five less? What about 10 less? What about 15 less? What if you just find 10? Oh God, it seemed kind of bold of him. We have that same access to God today through Jesus. I would say we have better access to God than even Abraham did. And he was standing beside God in the flesh. But we being saved now through Jesus Christ, having the curtain torn into, have direct access to God by a great high priest who allows us to come to God with boldness and intercede on behalf of those who are lost. Church family, will we do so? Will we do so? What a better time to think about that than Christmas. Over the next Four weeks, people in our culture are going to be thinking about Jesus without knowing they're thinking about Jesus. Your friends and family are going to be thinking about Jesus. What better time than in a pandemic? Everyone's faced with this idea of death right now. What better time to offer them the hope of Christ through intercession before God? Oh, will we plead for the salvation of souls? But that's not the only hope we find here. We find personal hope in the story of Lot. Lot escaped Sodom because of Abraham. And we escape the judgment of God because of Jesus. Is there anything greater that we could have thanksgiving for this morning? Is there any greater hope than we could think this morning? That Jesus has provided for us a way to escape the judgment of God. And remember, the judgment of God is always just. And if he were to judge me in my sin, he would be right to do so. But because he has offered salvation to us through Jesus, we have a means of escape. And the judgment of God is coming. We so often act just like Lot. We wake up on the morning of judgment and we cook our breakfast. We tarry. We so often act like Lot's wife. We look back over our shoulder, longing for this world, having affinity for something that God had never intended for us to have an affinity with. Thinking that judgment will never come. But it is. 
And Jesus himself uses the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and this experience with Lot and his wife as he looks forward not to that first coming, which had already happened by Luke 17, but his second coming, which we still in hope anticipate today, where Jesus says, likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the son of man is revealed? On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife, whoever seeks to uh, to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. Hear me clearly this morning. Judgment is coming. But in Christ, we have hope. In Christ, we find righteousness. In Christ, we can persevere in that righteousness just as Abraham persevered in it. We don't have to be Lot. We don't have to be Lot's wife. We don't have to be Lot's daughters. We don't have to be Lot's son-in-laws. We don't have to be Sodom and Gomorrah. We can be children of Abraham by faith. Oh, what a great hope we have in Christ. Oh, what a great righteousness has been imparted to all who believe and all who believe will persevere in that righteousness to the end. We won't be distracted by this world. We won't be Lot's wife. That's what Jesus is warning about. We won't be Lot's wife who who has been so choked out by the ways of the world to borrow another illustration parable that Jesus uses where seeds are scattered and one of those seeds is just choked out by the world. You see, All who come to true faith in Jesus and have the imparted righteousness of Christ in their lives, that will not be their fate. Their fate will be that of perseverance in righteousness. What greater hope could we possibly think of today? If you've never put your faith in him, if you've never realized that hope in your life, today can be the day that you do that. And you don't have to be in the room to do that. You can be watching this live right now. You can be watching this recorded later. If Christ hasn't returned, there is still hope for you. I can't promise you how much time is left. It may be very little. It may be a lot. We're not told, but here's what we know. Jesus died in your place, offering salvation and forgiveness to you that if you will only believe, you too can find hope in him and have righteousness everlasting, not from yourself, but from him. And you too can escape the judgment of God and persevere in this world and into eternal life with him if you will only turn to him and believe. Will you do that today? Will you trust in him? For the saved in the room who have already done that, will we make it our mission to see others come to the same saving knowledge of Jesus that we have come to? Will we dedicate ourselves to praying? We, we started last year a program here called Who's Your One? I'm gonna talk more about this on the first Sunday of the new year, but I, I can't pass it by today. Have you been praying for your one? Or did coronavirus make you forget that there were lost people in your life? Have you been praying for that person in your life that you would say, I would, I would desperately seek for God to step into their lives and save them? If you haven't thought about it in weeks or even months, It's all right, think about it today. Pray, 
Ask God to do what only he can do. Because we recognize this, the greatest hope that we could ever offer to anyone is the hope of escape found in Jesus. Let's pray. Oh God, thank you. Thank you for your your redeeming work in our lives. Thank you, God, that you make us new in Christ. We recognize that you are a just God who will judge the earth. But through Jesus, you provide a way for us to escape that. Let us flee flee without looking back, we pray. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.